Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. Roxanne Derhodge of Authentic Living with Roxanne. Thanks for tuning in again this week. Uh, today I have a colleague, uh, fellow speaker, Alan Kelleher. Is, is it Keller or Kelleher? It doesn't even matter. It's Kaler, but nobody would know that. I didn't even get it close to it. Um, Alan uh, is... Um, you know, has worked in as a in the mental health field, as you know, that with my background, I've been in the mental health field for a while. And he's done a lot of uh, speaking. So I wanted to invite him on today to uh, just chat a little bit about, um, you know, mental health issues and, and substance abuse disorder. And, um, you know, just some of the valuable lessons that he's learned. So I'll tell you a little bit about his background. Um, he's had some issues over the years with mental health and substance abuse. Um, and he's learned some valuable life lessons um, that's kind of took him on a path of incredible uh, success. Uh, he's one of the Canada's most sought after speakers when it comes to the issues of mental health and wellness. Um, and he's uh, spoken of, on over 500 stages and he has a dynamic and captivating approach, which I can tell already, having uh, just met uh, Alan for the first time today. Uh, he left teaching after more than a decade uh, to focus on speaking and writing on various topics related to mental health. He has best-selling books, uh, four of them, and, and he's been featured in several national magazines. He lives in Saskatoon um, with his wife, four, four boys and four dogs. So double, <laughs> and a tank of fish. So you're, you've got a very busy household, no doubt, Alan. Yes, <laughs> yes, it can be rather chaotic at times, but we embrace the chaos. I think you would have to, right? Like, I mean, you know, what, how old are your children? Our oldest is actually 21. Wow. Uh, and then we have 18, 11, and 10. My goodness. So you got started early with, with your family. Well, I actually, Roxanne moved in three months sober with my wife and her two sons about 10 years ago. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's a whole nother story. That previous life of absolute, when, when we talk about chaos, yeah, my life was chaos before this. So tell us, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, you are you've been speaking around the area of mental health and um, uh, substance abuse uh, disorder. Tell us a bit about your story and kind of, um, you know, obviously through something that I, I would think would be have been a bit of adversity for you came out something that's positive, where you can go out and share a lot of the wisdom. So tell us a little bit about your path and kind of what got you from there to here to be able to teach others some of the things that you've learned? I'll give you the condensed version. I, I mean, basically I grew up small town, Saskatchewan, four and a half roads small. And we didn't talk about things like mental illness. You know, I didn't know what addictions were, but I can look back and identify that my challenges with mental illness really began in grade eight with something that was later diagnosed as body dysmorphic disorder, where I just, I avoided mirrors at all costs for, for the next 13 years. And I, I just, 
I didn't know what to do with my thoughts. You know, I thought I was the only one. I didn't want to share them. I hid behind that proverbial mask very well because on the outside, everybody saw something that was so different than what was going on on the inside. Because on the outside, they could see the person who was president of the school, athlete of the year, captain of sports teams. And I think I just continuously hid behind that smile. I hid behind the awards. And as we know, obviously, just because someone's smiling does not mean that they are happy. But what was always a hindrance for me was that I just didn't know how to talk about my pain. And obviously, because I didn't talk about it, I suffered more than anyone else. And all of a sudden in comes the psychiatrist. And I started to see, oh my gosh, Roxanne, like I've probably seen almost 30 different mental health professionals. And I was hit with so many labels. I hated them. Like I hated them. I felt I felt like the labels defined who I was. And I think it's because I just had no clue who I was. That piece about identity, no idea. So you give me a label, I wore it. I was like, oh, that's who I am. And then I think it was it was 11 or 12 medications that I was on in a span of six years to try to find some stability. And I think that it is logical to want to leave behind a life of pain in exchange for pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what fueled the gambling addictions, the alcohol. And it was just, uh, it was chaos, you know, and I ran from myself. I, I left home as soon as I was 16 for a private school. Then I'm off to Holland for a year. You talk about letting an animal outside of a cage. Like I just went nuts, Roxanne. I went nuts. And then I just kept running. And eventually you realize, oh, hang on. You cannot run from self no matter how hard you try. And then you reach a point where you realize if you want something different, you obviously have to do something different. And I hit many of those proverbial forks in the road. You know, at one point being told I had a month to live if I didn't change what I was doing and collapsing outside of a a classroom where I was teaching. I was teaching special ed. Um, But even then, you know, it's, it's, it's that nobody really knew the magnitude of my struggles. And that was on me. And then I found out pretty quickly that there's nothing more powerful than our voice. And when we start to use our voice and we start to share our stories and we start to become vulnerable, it therefore gives others permission to do the same. And that was really, I guess, what the catalyst was for the whole speaking venture. Because all of a sudden when I put a voice to it and you hear those two beautiful, powerful words, right? The, the me too. And just like that, what? Mm-hmm. You, you can relate to some of this. I, I'm not alone in these thoughts. Mm-hmm. And that's a powerful thing. So for me, oh my gosh, I look at where I was, Roxanne, and where I am. It could not be, it could not be more different. So yep. you started with body dysmorphia, which for, for some of the people listening, Alan, that don't know what that is, Try to explain it to them so that they understand kind of um, what you were going through and kind of some of the the, the thoughts and um, the perceptions of those thoughts and how it impacted your behavior. It impacted everything because how it started, Roxanne, is it was at a grade eight grad where they had um, they had all of us stand sideways and then they took those old projectors and traced over you know, the side profile. Mm, yeah. When I saw that for the first time, it unleashed something where all of a sudden I thought I was this hideous monster. I, I hated how I 
looked. I could never have somebody sit beside me. I couldn't even dribble a basketball uh, down the basketball court without thinking about of everybody seeing this hideous side. And so it, uh, it influenced everything, not having hair in my armpits. I was pretty fortunate to be gifted at sports, but all of a sudden I'm not taking shots because it, you know, it, it fed into everything. If somebody touched my hair, I couldn't even function socially. I had to go home. Uh, and then came diagnoses of, of bipolar disorder, of OCD, um, schizophrenia. I mean, it just kept coming. Mm-hmm. So at some point, so you leave home and you're, you're carrying this, like, you know, that's such a good term when you said you can't run from yourself. So as a, as a psychotherapist, I see people trying. And, and as human beings, I would say that we're quite, re- we're quite creative in the things that we figure out, right? Sometimes it's more out there like substances and gambling and stuff, but some people work too much. Some people shop too much. And these are more acceptable. But in your case, yours was kind of out there with more destructive behavior. Was that what was started to happen with you? I did not have the tools to manage my pain. So I looked outside of myself to do so. I mean, even for me, when we talk about substance use disorder or, you know, addiction, for me, it's very simple. It's trying to live outside of ourselves so that we don't have to be with self. Mm -hmm. If anybody tried to make me look in, look within, I just repelled. Do not make me feel. And I, and I mean, you and I both know this, it's, it's pain that fuels those behaviors, those disorders. Mm-hmm. And so I would just lose myself in any activity. Uh, and, and that's just logical too, isn't it? That if we can't form a connection with ourself, we're going to form connections with things outside of ourselves. And usually they're not healthy. And therefore I was continuously trying to harm or kill myself. Mm-hmm. So how long did that trajectory go on? And what were some of the now that you look back, and I'm sure when you're on stage, you're telling your story, which must be quite powerful and riveting. Were there points in gaps in time that you kind of thought, I got to do something different here? Or did they kind of close up quickly and then you moved on again to, a, you know, to, to continue the hiding from yourself? There are many glimpses. It's kind of that process, two steps forward, one step back. There are many pivotal moments where somebody said, that one thing that, you know, I planted and stored later, but until I was ready to change, then nothing could happen. There was, there was a teacher who was very instrumental in my ability to change. His name was Ian McNeil. And, and uh, the short and sweet of it is that in an auditorium of 300 students, I being the student, he came up to me after one of those lectures and he just said, come to my office, Al, let's talk. And I thought, well, uh, okay, I've talked to you a handful of times. What, what is this all about? And mm-hmm. it was really interesting, Roxanne, because it forced me to be vulnerable. Um, but vulnerability always leads to reward in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And when I got into his office, it was his approach that I just found really intriguing because, you know, every day we say, how are you doing? Which, which is just robotic. And he said, how are you doing today, Alan? But it was the compassion that was intriguing it was his engagement and I could tell that he was coming from this place of love and he understood that that nobody wants to be fixed he understood that we all want to be seen we all want to be supported he put the ball in my court he kind of asked me that million dollar question are you happy I Ian no no Ian 
I'm not happy. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? And so it was at that point that he then gave me resources. And that was a place where I realized, okay, okay, I have all these tools at my disposal. Now it comes down to choice. And, and he, he, like he continuously played that role of checking in, not being too forceful. And I, I find Roxanne, so many people, mm-hmm. it's horrible to see people that you love, that you care about struggling, yes. but it really comes back to what can you control and what can you not, like, what do you have to surrender? And, and that's what Ian did a beautiful job of. And he just helped me, I guess, essentially take my power back and, and use my voice. And, and um, he was just always in my corner cheering me on. So he was able to hold the space yeah, and be gentle enough for you to be feel seen. And, but he didn't direct you in a way that made you felt, feel controlled. Is, totally. is that, and that's a hard space, right? Because I know a lot of people that are listening are probably thinking if they're dealing with somebody that has, let's say, an addiction, that's a tough place to be sometimes. Because right? you see maybe someone saying they want to change, then they go out and, you know, they go on a kind of a bit of a run or something. And then, you know, they start using more and more. So for anybody that's listening, that's say maybe struggling with a family member or something like that. What what kind of words of guidance would you give them to really support someone in the same place um, way that Ian did with you? It's this simple. It is this simple where you can simply approach someone and say, I don't mean to pry. I just want to let you know that I'm concerned. I want to let you know that I'd be more than happy to listen if you ever needed to talk. That is it. It's not about fixing it's, it's about that validation. For me, I think we have those two basic needs. See me, hear me. You put a statement like that out there. You just said, I see you. Now, whether or not they act on the invite, then it comes back to, well, is that in your control or out of your control? And obviously it's completely out of your control, mm-hmm. but when they are ready to then talk, I mean, elders always tell us, we have, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. The, the most powerful gift, I believe, and you alluded to this earlier, Roxanne, is create the space, right? Mm-hmm. And there's numbers out there, like, I don't know, 7% of the way that we communicate is verbal. But it's those 93. It's, it's what Ian gave me. You know, he was engaged. He was leaning forward. There was compassion. There was love. And he did not talk. He gave me the ability to just be free from those emotions because emotions are energy. And all that the man did, he did nothing. And yet he did, I would say everything because he created that space so that I could be free from some of those emotions. Yeah. And, and that's like the definition of healing for me is pretty simple. The more that you can get the darkness out, the more room you're going to make for light. That's a gift that we can give people. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, uh, you know, in my years, as a psychotherapist, I often, I would hear people say, and this would blow my mind, you know, they would say, you know, do you know, I've never sat across, I've never felt loved. And I go, you know, how is that, you know, how is that possible? And sometimes people's stories are so, you know, they're really, it's hard for them to be able to share because they feel so closed off, right? Like, I don't feel like I'm valuable enough to be loved because I don't think I've experienced love. And, 
you know, sometimes it's saying nothing, like to your point, but that's a tough thing for a lot of people to do, right? To really, really just kind of sit in that space and to see someone like myself, Lord help you. That must be, uh, okay, I'm not going to do that because they're petrified of someone like myself. And I always say to people, I'm just a person. I'm just here to kind of hang out with you and see if we can kind of work together. But there's that demystifying part of what, what gets associated with um, any kind of mental health, right? Because I, I also say it's on a spectrum, right? Any of us could get pushed over if you don't have like a bit of a biological element. Maybe there is biology, but oftentimes um, Gabor Mate talks about, you know, that, you know, and I'm sure you know who Gabor is, the small percentage of people that actually come into this world related to completely just biological diseases. And a lot of it gets developed by, you know, whether we call it small T trauma, which is little things all the way up to the gamut of any kind of, you know, horrendous atrocity kind of thing. So it's, it's hard for a lot of people to get help. So with, with you, like you said, Ian helped you, you went through a trajectory of things. At some point, what started to kind of happen internally that made you think, all right, Alan, you got to do something. You got to do something here. Because I think a lot of people have that thought, but they're afraid to make that step. Yeah, we naturally fear change, don't we? Mm-hmm. And I think that for myself and what I find with a lot of men is it comes down to the fear of being vulnerable, the fear of being judged, the perception that comes with it. I met an elder who I respect, and this was a turning point for me where he says, Al, you are not the only person who has experienced mental illness. And he said, Al, you're not the only person who struggled with addiction. And he said, Al, you are not the only person who's been sexually abused. Mm -hmm. If you want something different, go get it because this world owes you nothing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, first of all, that's rather direct. (laughs) Uh, And I was very pissed off, but as you chew on that, there's a lot of truth. And so what had to happen for me is the victim mentality had to be removed. It, it, it did not serve me. And, and so the, the biggest thing, Roxanne, that I did is I started to surround myself with others who spoke my language. And when I say that, I mean, I had to get into spaces where other people had similar lived experiences. That was my saving grace. And it was awful. It was awful to get myself into that first Gamblers Anonymous meeting. You know, I, I mean, I, I sat in my car and just cried, cried, cried. I was so terrified to open up that door because if I walk into that building, well, then it's real. And denial is just, uh, and I don't know, it's, it's what I knew I was more comfortable there. I, I finally got myself into AA. I got myself into men's support groups who'd been sexually abused. Like the, the fear, the terror, the anxiety, um, talk about overwhelming but you find out pretty quick, and we talked about this before, that you have to take risks if you want any shot at having rewards. And all of a sudden, I started to see rewards. And, and you know, I learned very quickly that I had to surround myself with people who lift me up, not down. I had no clue what boundaries were. Those were stripped from me, you know, through acts of sexual abuse. And, and so... Yes. It was, it was very hard to rebuild. It was very hard to find value in me. 
as a person and it, and it still is. Um, but you, you get those glimmers of happiness and by no means am I sitting here saying that, you know, I find life all happy and uh, joyous. Like it's hard. Mm -hmm. It is flat out hard for me and many people. But the difference is that I have found ways to utilize strategies, um, surround myself with people who really get me right. And um, understand the power of hope, like, and, and resilience, it's a buzzword, but really for me, like I look back and for every one of us, we have survived hundred percent of our most challenging days. Right. And I often say, and um, uh, you know, something you may not know about me is that trauma is one of my specialties. So I've um, been involved. I live here in Niagara Falls and I've been involved uh, for 25 years with the sexual assault center here, right out of university. I started to volunteer and then I got involved. And, you know, what I found interesting is that a lot of times in addiction centers, and this is data that from the center that I was at, was one out of six men that were sexually abused and one out of three women. Yep. So the reality is there's a lot of people that are, have been wounded, unfortunately, in this way. And the pain is so high that they're trying to find a way to quiet the pain. And, you know, unfortunately, if they don't make these some of these connections you're suggesting, they live in that pain because they're trying to avoid the pain, you know, instead of figuring out, like you said, if I tell one person, then that secret doesn't start to define me in the same way. It takes a step a bit at a time, you know, and after a while people are like, and I've, you know, the thing is that what I found interesting with men is that um, with survivors, men open up so much quicker once they're safe. Women, not so much. <laughs> One <laughs> of the talkers, right? So I've done both groups, but man, once you get them into safety, I'm like, whoa! It's like opening this floodgate, and uh, you know. And then they were the depth of connection that got created in those rooms was amazing to watch. So you know, I, I I'm so happy when you share that for anybody listening that has been through the kind of pain that you're talking about that they recognize um, you're not defined by your pain, but it takes you have to risk to trust somebody to be safe again. Yeah, well said, totally agree. You know, it's, it's uh, um, so for people that are listening, you know, cause you know, a lot of times the people that listen in, they, you know, they're, they may be struggling or they're thinking, you know, what should I, what's the first step that I should take Alan? Like, what is it should, that I should do? Because you know what, the, these negative thoughts outweigh my positives and I feel shitty most of the time. And I don't know what's the first little step that I can take. What would you tell someone listening? I, I, Roxanne, I firmly believe that darkness begs to see the light of day. Like it, it begs to see the light of day. For me in hindsight, my downfall was that I continuously isolated, I withdrew, I didn't put a voice to my pain. So step one, they think in some way, shape or form, the emotions that have been suppressed have got to come out in a healthy way. And it's not necessarily the talk therapy that a lot of people think of, because for me, um, I don't, I still don't trust people. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a work in progress, but I can tell a piece of paper, anything. And pen and paper became one of my greatest outlets. For some it's culture, for some it's music. But I think the first step is you have to get to a place where what I'm doing is not working. And for me, I, I always said like, damn it, there, there has to be more to life. There has to be 
I just, I just didn't quite know how to get there. And it, it's not like it all comes at once, but it's, it's like the, whatever that saying is to, to get to a thousand miles, it starts with one step, but truly you, you have to start to do something different yeah. and that's going to require being vulnerable. And I find that often we are our greatest barriers that that last book that I wrote on men and mental health, when I interviewed all the men, that was the theme. And what the beautiful thing was, what people thought was going to happen did not happen. They were actually met with compassion. They were met with love. And that's, that's what I'm saying. We, we got to get out of this. Absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, I have a 20 year old son and um, I often would say, you know, I grew up with sisters and one brother, but that men aren't afforded the opportunities that women are to share. Right. Like, and, and then now I, and then I have a boy <laughs> and I would see the difference right when he would have to shift, you know, he was a little boy and then he started to play, let's say you like he played hockey and I could see how he had to make that shift to toughen up. And I would say to him, you know, you can, you can be that person when you're playing a sport, but you still have to stay connected to who you are. And it was interesting to see all the little boys that had to shift into something else. And all of a sudden they started to become teenagers and then they were kind of, you know, being um, kind of more insular within themselves. And, you know, if anything, I'm so happy to have you have this conversation because I think we have to get the word out there that boys um, need to get connected probably even more or equally on the same level as girls when they learn about communication and connection because we're, we're doing a disservice to the men out there that are not learning how to communicate early. And here's the main thing. If we as men cannot give ourselves permission to feel, to be vulnerable, to perhaps shed a tear, to reach out for support, why the hell would the boys? Like boys are training to be men. And it's one thing to talk about it. It's another to model it and see it. And, and I am seeing a lot of men who are at that place of like, I, I can't do this anymore. Uh, I'm done with the hiding. I'm done with the, the shame. And so they put a voice to it. And of course, that's where vulnerability breeds vulnerability. Mm -hmm, for sure. Uh, this has been a, a deep interview um, for anybody that wants to connect with you or um, buy, you know, any of your books or to get you for speaking or training. Alan, where would they get a hold of yours? And is there anything you want to say as last words before we close off? I guess, Roxanne, um, first of all, I appreciate the opportunity to just put a face and voice to some of these issues. I appreciate your time and anyone who takes the time to listen. The The best way is probably through my website, which is A-L-L-A-N-K-E-H-L-E-R.com, alankaler.com. There's a contact form. And uh, last words, I think it just comes down to if, if you're struggling, like you're only alone when you choose to be alone and realizing the power of just putting a voice to some of your pain and, and being free from some of it. Life can no doubt be hard, but it can also be enjoyable. Absolutely, couldn't have been better said. So I always say to people um, when, I, when I've treated them over the years, you are not defined by your pain, right? Yes, it will override you, but to take that step, like Alan's saying, just take some small step to connect in some way. 
Um, and the first step is always the scariest and avoidance is our biggest enemy. So if, mm-hmm. you know, the more that you can try to just step into it and allow somebody to get close or um, have some kind of interaction that shows you that trust is possible, uh, then you open up a, a universe to, to possibilities of uh, things in your life that makes you look forward versus looking in the rearview mirror. So thanks a lot again, Alan. And for anyone uh, needing information um, on authenticity and connection either at home or at, with your uh, leaders and your teams at work, you can reach me at RoxanneDurhodge.com. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxannederhage.com slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.